Welcome to Famous with Kate and Liz. We didn't kill the queen. We didn't kill the queen. <laughs> we were so nervous. On wood. I'm knocking on wood. He's knocking on wood. Yes. I mean, we were so nervous to record our last episode. Of course, we're in the Famous Females um, series right now. So we did QE2 last week and we were like, this is going to be the kiss of death on Queenie Pooh, and we can't have that. So it's You're been ready. almost a week, and she hasn't died. So who people have died this year alone, though? Like, so many people already, <sighs> like, famous people. I know. So, I, know. I, I mean, she is still kicking. She is strong. I think she's doing okay. She just, you know, overcame COVID. COVID didn't catch her. So, you know what? I think um, hopefully we have a few more years, a few yes less years of Charles, a few more years of Liz. <laughs> yes, I know. God, he is just, he cannot wait. His little grubby fingers cannot wait to get his hands on, on the crown. And um, it's going to be an interesting time. That's for sure. Um, but so, as I said, we're on the Famous Female series. Um, this is Liz's week. So I'm just going to hand it right over to you. Yeah, well, okay, so you guys were still always taking suggestions, so please yes. drop us a line. Um, we're on Instagram at Famous Kate and Liz with Kate with a C. Gmail, same thing, Famous Kate and Liz at gmail.com. Uh, Instagram's the quickest way to get our attention. But for famous females, this is so hard because there's so many, like, badass so women that, like, I want to celebrate, but... I wanted to learn about someone that I never had heard of that I didn't know about that I felt like deserved more recognition, I guess. Um, yeah, so that, that. That. yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like, there were so many, I was like athletes, actresses, whatever, uh, scientists, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I came across this woman named Frances Glessner Lee, who has been dubbed the mother of forensic science. So, <laughs> And what do we, I mean, no, if nothing, we love forensic science. I mean, I love a badass female. I love some forensic science. Uh, it's, yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to be great because I've never heard of her either. So and I think we're all going to learn something. I don't think a lot of people have. So yeah. Okay. So she um, is okay. Again, coming off of Queen Elizabeth II, like, the great colonizer and her family. Like, I really wanted to do someone a little bit more diverse, but this is another white lady who is pretty privileged. But I like her because, unlike Queen Elizabeth, really, she uses her privilege for good and seeking justice and stuff. <laughs> oh, um, and we love that for her. We love that for yeah. her. Yes. And, and she kind of also, you know, doesn't stick to traditional female roles of the time, of her time. So, um, yes, love that. This is very like Amelia Earhart. Yeah, she was very like of her time. Yeah, she was like, I'm wearing pants, I'm flying a plane, like, and I am a woman, so and deal with it. And she just did it, like, she just was like, "Uh, This is what I want to do because I prefer it, so just leave me the fuck alone. (laughs) And I'm good at it, yeah, okay, yeah. Mm Sit down, sit down. So yeah, it's going to be shorter than last week's epic two-hour-long ranting. <laughs> but um, I know, and I'll try to keep the ranting to a minimum. I'm really going to work on my interrupting and ranting. So. No, no, 
because there's just not, you know, as much known about Francis's personal life as the queen. So, but, you know, let's get into it. She's very interesting. And um, a lot of her, you know, inventions are still used today. So uh, Francis Glessner Lee was born in Chicago on March 25th, 1878. And her father was a man named John Jacob Glessner, who was an industrialist. And he became wealthy from um, International Harvester, which was an agricultural manufacturing company. So, like, farming equipment and stuff like that. Um, okay. Um, I just update. Like, I just Googled her, which, if you're listening along, you might want to Google her, too. And just, like, she's just, like, a grandma. Yeah. Like, in these pictures, that's what she looks like. Like, just a picture, your grandma. I just thought a <laughs> lot a of also, um, Sarah Winchester and stuff like that, you know, when we were mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like, she got maybe inherited her wealth, but was also, like, not going to follow the social norms. Um, so, yeah, yeah, they called her Fanny, and um, she was a sheltered and indulged child uh, raised in a household that epitomized the aesthetic and moral ideals of the 19th century um, her mother uh, was also named Frances. Uh, she oversaw the family's well-being and cultural causes, like they were philanthropists and all that. Um, and in 1886, the Glessners broke ground on a fortress that was going to become their home um, on Chicago's fashionable Prairie Avenue. And wow, okay, yeah, so they're fortress it's called and I should note sorry I didn't get into this I did use several sources obviously Wikipedia Harvard Magazine and the Atlantic all had articles that I got information okay we love to cite a source we love to cite a source yes (laughs) I did not come up with this on my own uh so yeah they're building this fortress it was designed by an architect called H.H. Richardson who was like the era's foremost American architect very sought after so, you know, okay. I'm thinking I'm thinking very Gilded Age yes. because I'm watching that right now. And that's like this time period. So high society um, for mm-hmm. sure. And inside their home, like there was a collection of art objects and fine furniture that her father collected. Um, and like I read that, um, I think eventually the house maybe today or at some point um was turned into a museum too because you know so I think again like Isabel's her collector at this kind of time um and all that you know Mm -hmm. lots of health and you know kind of eccentric as well yeah love that love that uh so Fanny and her brother were both stay-at-home um educated kids he went on to Harvard um and she married an attorney named Blewett Lee at the age of 19. So she was, you know, very young, but probably not for that day. Um, Yeah. And they had three children and they first appeared to be happy, but she eventually got a divorce. Um, Her son attributed the failed marriage partly to her creative urge, um, coupled with her high manual dexterity and desire to make things which her husband well, probably because she wanted was like, I want to have a job because I'm wicked smart in something and I can help a lot of people. And he's like, no bitch, you can't have a job. <laughs> Settle down. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have dreams and aspirations. He said their father didn't really share that, you know? So I think she was just like this creative mind, you know, it kind of reminds me of someone who loves to like take apart something just to fix it, you know, and put it back together. Yes. Like she liked doing stuff like that. She was very inventive. 
Um, but in one other article, I also read that a miscarriage um, that she had may have led to the divorce, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so well, I, I'm sure it was a, a combination. Yeah, I think there was several factors, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, after the divorce, she had this close friendship with her brother's classmate, a man named George Burgess McGrath. And I don't believe there was, like, anything romantic or whatnot, like, she just had, like, this friendship with him, like, they went on to Harvard, she couldn't, you know, um, and this George later became a professor in pathology at Harvard Medical School, and then the chief medical examiner for Suffolk County, and um, he obviously had this interest in forensic investigation, and he's who she credits with, like, getting her interested in that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm like fully impressed. So uh, using her fortune and visual talent, she entered the forensic world, um, but she still was able to perpetuate the feminine role that was like expected of her that she sort of rehearsed during married life, you know. Um, So she was able to kind of go into this traditionally male arena, but like not going so much that, you know, they were threatened, I guess. Wow. Uh, In 1931, she endowed a Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard, and subsequent gifts established the George Burgess McGrath, her friend, uh, library. And um, he was the chair in legal medicine and the Harvard Seminars in Homicide Investigation. So she's giving her money to the school to, like, advance science um, and keep it advancing the science. Right, right. She's she you can tell she really wants to help help people and she she's like I have a you know I have a gift I have a ton of money too (laughs) Uh, yeah I have a gift and a ton of money and I'm actually wanting to do good with it so so she also presided over seminars in grand fashion um you know like she was the only woman among 30 or 40 men giving banquets at the Ritz Carlton for detectives and medical examiners and she would like personally oversee like the elaborate menus and floral floral arrangements, table seatings, decorations, you know, all of that. So playing that feminine role, but like funding these conferences that are helping people, you know, investigate crimes better. Right. And I bet she felt good about like, as a woman, she at least could get like this far infiltrated in to like show them, hi, women have like brains too, you know? So Yes. Because at that time, it was kind of like, if you did something like that, that could, like, ruin you. You know right. what I mean? Like if you're if a high it's... society lady, like, why would you mm-hmm. want to do that? You know, is there something right. wrong with you? Right. And, and I mean, some people were accepted in, but that was like a, you know, one in a million chance of being accepted as you are, dependent on how the people in society viewed you like if they were like eh, we'll just like cancel her you know like they basically decided who was canceled for what at the time she was really smart because she used like these parties um as a way to woo men who would like not be normally inclined to listen to a middle-aged woman so like at the end of seminars she would throw these parties like at the Ritz Carlton so like she already had them all in one place and then she got to like socialize and have their ear you know through the parties so smart Mm mm-hmm um, and so at the party, she would um, 
give this little like memento for the occasion. And she would leave people with a parting gift, which was a miniature nutshell that opened up to um, reveal a pair of miniature working cufflinks. So like a nice little what? Uh, gift that she would give people, which, which this miniature is going to come in very shortly into her talents, uh, making miniature things. Okay. What do you mean, like, miniature, like, so there's, you open up a nutshell, and there's, like, cufflinks inside it? Uh Okay. I don't know why they were, like, miniature cufflinks, because I feel like there's a one-size-fit-all in that category. I don't know. Yeah, but anyway, it was, like, something, a miniature, so interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, People didn't really know where to put her. Again, she was like eccentric. I think of Isabella Stewart Gardner, you know. Um, so she was kind of out there, but she won respect in professional circles. And at one point, New Hampshire made her an honorary police captain, and she was um, the first female police captain in New Hampshire after that. Oh, great. Oh, yes. I see a newspaper art- article here if I scroll down when I Google her. Yeah. So that was an honor. Yeah. So to her. Um, So the biggest invention and probably contribution she's made to forensic science and what she's known for are these things called the nutshell studies of unexplained death. Uh, Okay. Explain. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right. I'll explain the unexplained. Um, So she was convinced that criminology theory. and crimes could be solved um, by a scientific analysis, like a visual scientific analysis of material evidence. So in the 1930s and 40s, she constructed a series of dioramas called the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And what they were were like these dioramas of crime scenes, very intricate and detailed. We'll get into it. Um, different crime scenes. And uh, when you're looking at them, you would have to, you would be able to determine whether the corpse had died because of murder, suicide, or death by natural cause or accident. Um, yes. And I want to say th- this is in the Google images also. So if you Google Francis Glessner Lee images, these little crime scene dioramas pop up and they are insane they are insane and so cool like very if you're into like dollhouses or anything miniature you have to check these out um so yeah she um made these super intricate things uh and that were used to determine the type of death and the cause of death and uh she felt that the truth could be properly seen in a nutshell you know if you just were able to examine like the entire crime scene um, and the wealth of material like at the crime scene um, but using like a geometric pattern to guide you and so she had suggested a clockwise spiral I guess um, Hmm. for the best vision you know of the scene and I guess students would get like 90 minutes to like study these um, dioramas because eventually she donated these to Harvard in 1945 to use in um, her own seminars that she taught there. Uh, so they would get like 90 minutes. They had to study everything. Wow. You know. This is like a brilliant idea. Right. I mean, absolutely brilliant because really it, when you look at these dioramas, you can see, okay, if you walk into a crime scene after like bodies have been moved and this and that, or even before they've been moved, 
when you're, you know, the next day, you can't remember exact, okay, how exactly was the body laying? Like, yeah, there might be pictures now, but it's just like, this lets you kind of sit back and look at the whole entire thing. It's like from a bird's eye view too, which you just get like walking through the door and looking around, you know, same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I, I mean, they were even saying like, you can't show like, you know, you can't use like a doll to show rigor mortis. Right. But she would mm-hmm. like draw that on or paint it on. And somehow, you know, like people would have to pay attention to things like that. You know, <laughs> she was so detailed, like, okay, so it's in rigor mortis. So it happened hours ago, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It really just puts an extra depth to like thinking about, wow, the, these are like people. And this is like, an actual crime scene like damn yeah but also like dollhouse and cute <laughs> right I know and then, I know exactly cute and like horrific um so yeah. the dioramas actually went to the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office in 1966 um and they're still in use today for forensic seminars like for teaching people some of the dioramas are um the crimes depicted in the nutshells were composites of actual cases. So the character and the decoration of the diorama's interiors um, were her own invention. And um, she, okay. she would like create these scenes that she probably didn't have much experience with. You know, they were more middle-class decor and maybe like mm-hmm. uh, faces that the disenfranchised might inhabit, CD rooms, boarding houses. Uh, you know, yeah, that's true. That's true. How did she get this so good? Right, exactly. So, um, and it also said that, you know, a lot of times her, um, dioramas expose the dark side of domesticity. (laughs) That's a tough one. Yes. Well, this is what I was just going to say. One of these pictures I clicked on is like the woman laid out in front of her stove with a ironing board with the iron on it like she's actively ironing actively cooking dinner like the refrigerator door is open I'm like this is like me (laughs) oh mom kind of boom dead knowing that like a lot of the victims were women and they were often stray from a security of their home by men misfortune or their own like unchecked desires too so like kind of showing the emphasis on on like how many of the victims were women too yeah, this is crazy. Yeah, I saw that picture. I was like, this is haunting. This is me. <laughs> <laughs> like, just a, just a housewife. Just a housewife. That's it, folks. Oh, my God. I need it's you to real. understand how detailed these dioramas are for those of you who aren't Googling and are just listening. Yeah. Um, so an Atlantic article described um, one diorama or like the dioramas in general as I'm just going to read this quote. Lee was fastidious to the point of of obsession. In one nutshell titled Saloon and Jail, a man lies face down in the street. Debris is strewn everywhere on the pavement. Miniature cigarettes, hand-rolled and filled with paper. (laughs) A banana peel, which is painted leather. Scraps of paper with visible faces. A storefront in the background displays newspapers and magazines with real covers from the date of the man's death. A bucket of tiny, colorful lollipops sits in the magazine. Um, oh, my God. Each piece of candy individually wrapped in cellophane. Um, and then the story yeah. goes at one point, Lee requested that the carpenter who built the wooden structures 
um, and furniture in the nutshells, remake a certain rocking chair because she wanted it to rock the exact same number of times. Oh, my God. That is OCD. Yes. But that's the kind of person you need to be doing these things. Right, right. Exactly. Who's going to think about all those things? Uh, She also made use of the factory-made dollhouse pieces, like boxes of ivory soap that um, show up in the pantries of the different nutshells, and textiles from clothing on dolls to upholstery on couches. She hand-sewed all by herself, um, you know, and after her death, people found half-finished doll clothing that she was still knitting. (laughs) Oh, my God. She probably wanted to do every single crime scene, like, ever. Like, create, like, that is how intricate it is, you know? And, like, this it, it, it looks like it. I mean, it looks like. Your eyes and your hands and, like, oh, my God, as you get older. Yeah. Oh, my God, please. Yeah. Well, 30, she, what, seven? I can't even. I could not do this. Oh, me either. She knew that to be taken seriously, her nutshell dioramas had to be more than just, like, meticulously crafted. They had to be scientifically accurate, too. Um, so she like, you know, that's why she spent so much, you know, time and on this, um, she bought porcelain doll heads and other parts, and she made sure to fashion their bodies according to the real biology. Um, you know, wow. like you can't buy a doll in rigor mortis. Um, this one person said, but like, she made sure, you know, like if someone had fallen into a position with an un- unusually stiff neck, she would make sure to like show that in some way. <laughs> um, that is crazy. I mean, these are, they look very, very precise, like down to the last detail. Yeah. And so like even some dolls show like when the blood in the body sinks to like whatever part of the body is facing down and like that part of the skin turns purplish red. She shows that on some of them, you know, wow. If you're examining a crime scene and like how long a body has been in a certain way. Yeah. And she knew, she knew all that stuff. So, right. right. And she's like, I have to scientifically accurate to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, otherwise I'll just be like, okay, little woman with all houses. (laughs) Yeah. She really thought of everything. So, and each model was um, estimated to cost about $3,000 to $4,500 to create. So, back in the day, that's a lot of money, and she had a lot of money. So, um, yeah, she really was the perfect person to do this. I mean, wow. And so, you know, one article said morgues and crime scenes were hardly places for ladies of good breeding to discuss, let alone visit. And so listener Mm -hmm. nutshells allowed her to obtain professional recognition and transgress um, limitations imposed um, and um, and gender stereotypes. Refusing to confine her identity and intellect to the comforts of domestic life, she nevertheless recreated in miniature variants of the very spaces that she sought to transcend. In doing so, Glistener Lee created her own uh, liminal place located between propriety spheres of public and private and masculine and feminine as categories were defined and challenged in her lifetime. So she created her own space, people, because she didn't like what society gave her. Wow. She did. She did. Cheers to you. Yeah. So Francis. like I said, Annie. 
earlier that like some of the dioramas are still in use today. 18 of the original ones are still used for training purposes. Um, I think I said in Maryland, but then this also says at the Harvard Associates in police science. So people are still learning from them and learning how to catch bad guys and get just justice today. Um, in 2017, the dioramas were on display at the Smithsonian in Washington. And, you know, at this point, they're like 80 plus years old. Um, and they were really starting to like fade and age, like the tablecloths and like all the decorations are fading and the painting. Oh, no. So like a major undertaking just to have the exhibit was the Smithsonian actually conserving them and working to um, fix them just so they could. Oh, good. Like, yeah. Restore them back to the word. original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did I come up with that? Uh, and so the restoration was actually described by the Smithsonian staff as a, um, a bit of detective work itself because the restorer had to look for like subtle hints, like glue residue, to match up with, say, like an object that had fallen off the shelf to find out like where it was supposed to be originally, you know, like because some things had fallen. Wow. Yeah. So it was like almost like a little mystery itself to put them back together. Right. Yeah. That's like a little crime scene. (laughs) And like they were saying, like every object out of place is very important because it's a clue. So you can't have it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And one of them, there's like a chair flipped over and I'm like, Okay, that's very deliberate. Like when you when you hear of a crime scene and you hear like, oh, and there was a chair flipped over and whatever, like literally I'm telling you people, <laughs> when you go back and look at these crime scenes, you're like, wow, there's a blood stain there. And then like the chairs knocked over. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, was there a scuffle? Like, was someone standing on the chair? Ah. Yeah, every object is an important clue. So whenever they would restore one of these dioramas, they had to consult with the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office because they have the solutions to the nutshells. So they know like where. (gasps) Oh, my God. So they're not unsolved anymore. Right. Well, they yeah, they know what what it's supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Okay, cool. Okay. So you can kind of. Oh, my God. This is like a, a game you can play. You can look yeah, at these and then think about what happened. Oh my God, this is always fun. Solutions, but like the students had to figure it out because they were based on real crime scenes. They were just using them. Right. To like, uh, so, you know, like they weren't going to put those solutions out there. So like these are definitely kept and guarded. And so the Smithsonian had to be like every time be like, oh, do we get this right? Or is there supposed to be like a teacup over here? Or, you know. <laughs> oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just, like, give them the solutions, first of all, instead of, like, making them do it and then call them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. It's a good story. Um, And then a big part of the conservation project was also focused on the lighting because um, listener Lee used incandescent bulbs, which were available in her time, that have, like, a really nice warm glow, but they are very hot and the heat causes damage. So, like, the painted linoleum on some of the dioramas has, like, cracked and curled, like, because of the light bulbs above it and, you know, stuff like that. So, the Smithsonian um, went through, and like, they, they would have to have the lights on, like, for hours 
each day to have like an exhibit. So right. they replaced 70 of the old light bulbs with custom made LED light bulbs to match the quality of the light without the heat. <laughs> wow. Done beforehand, you know, so. So, yeah, I wish I had seen that. I hope that they will, you know, continue to show these exhibits, you know, like maybe it'll go around the country. Maybe that'll be like the new Instagram thing, you know, how there's like <laughs> all those exhibits now, like the Van Gogh thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, 100 percent. I would go to this. I totally. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's awesome. So, I mean, that's really the gist of it, uh, she created these amazing intricate dioramas that are used to solve crimes that people still learn from today to assess a crime scene. And that's how Frances Glistner Lee became the mother of forensic science. Wow. I love learning about a new, like, amazing woman. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm so happy. I'm so yeah. happy that I know of this woman and what she did. We Thank should all you. be happy, you know, um, because she's actually, you know, out there helping fight the good fight. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, again, someone who is privileged to use, you know, her her natural inquisitiveness and need to know and creativity to like do something good for people and someone I had never heard of, so I don't know if you guys have ever heard of her, but spread the word, spread the good word about Frances Glistner Lee. Yes, this uh, is a great, this is a great like dinner topic too. Yeah. Like if you're out with friends, like be like, oh my god, yeah. you need to Google this right now. Like there's this woman, and she made little little dioramas, little dollhouse dioramas of crime scenes, and it's crazy, and you need to look at it. It, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, it's like totally one of those conversations. Bring it up. Let someone know, you know, you learned about someone new and badass. And um, yeah, you know, like I said, there are so many women to choose from. I know next week you might do a mashup. You might do one person like it's all up in the air because it's just been so hard to narrow it down. Like this could be a whole series in itself. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I know. Yeah, we could have a whole nother spinoff podcast with famous women like and just do one every week because. There is, I mean, so many famous women who you're like, what? There was, I didn't, didn't learn about this in history class. Like, what is happening? 50% of um, so There's a Yeah, lot. hello. Well, women out there. <laughs> We're here. We are here. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but it's going to be good. And, um... I hope you listen and thanks for listening to this episode. Um, love you, mean it. Yeah, can't wait for next week. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.